Testing one, two. I think I've got some juice. I've got juice. 
Test one, two, three. Check, check. Test me one, two,
Who's in charge? All right. All by your lonely? All right. Huh? Oh, okay, sure. But left you at the helm. That's good.
Redeemer Presbyterian. We're glad you're here with us today to worship the Lord. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. And we want to extend a special welcome to visitors, folks who may be here for the first time. Our call to worship can be found on the inside of the bulletin. Let us come before the Lord. Let us prepare our hearts. This is a responsive prayer as we seek to welcome the Lord into our presence. Come, fill this place with your presence, O Lord. We come to celebrate your unchanging love. Watch over us, O God, according to your tender love. You are the great God who brought us to yourself when we were dead in our sins. Lord, indeed, before the foundations of the world, you put your name upon our lives and our hearts, and you rescued us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, continue to sanctify us through your Holy Spirit. Draw us close to you, Lord. Let us let go of those idols that cling so tightly to our hearts, and let us worship in wonder and sincerity of heart. All of this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. 
We thank you that you planted yourself in us through the Holy Spirit, us who are your church, Lord, that you gave us new life in you and we were dead in our transgressions, and that you have come into our hearts and taken up residence, and you're building a new life within us from the inside out as you change us and mold us and shape us into your likeness. We thank you that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, when our bodies will be resurrected, when we will be as we were meant to be, and we shall see you as you are, for we will be like you are, made in your image. Lord, let that desire, that hope, uh, burrow deep into our hearts and our souls. Let our ambition be nothing less than to know you in the power of your resurrection, sharing in your sufferings, becoming like you in your death. Lord, this is the great ambition, the great hope, the great uh, finality of what you are making us to be as your church. Lord, let us not be distracted by the things of the world, the contrivances and the trinkets, Lord, that seek to take our affections from uh, that which they belong to, which is you. And so we give ourselves to you as best as we know how, Lord, with all of our warts and all of our bumps and all of our problems and all of our circumstances, Lord. We give ourselves to you. 
Lord, watch over us. You are the shepherd of our souls. You take care of us and you keep us, Lord, and you go before us. Lord, we thank you for the people in this church. We thank you for Tony McAndrew and for what would seem to be a successful surgery, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen her body as she recovers, or that you would restore her to the fellowship, Lord. We pray that she would no longer have uh, the stomach issues, Lord, that she's been dealing with. Pray for Leslie Heisler. Lord, we thank you that she is um, out of the ER, that she is feeling better. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would uh, bring her home with her parents. Lord, we celebrate her and Alexandra Brinkley, who have both graduated from college. Lord, we ask for your hand to be upon them as they enter into the new chapter in their lives. Lord, may they go forth to lead and honor you in their respective vocations and circumstances. Lord, we pray for our military men and women, uh, for our police that come from this congregation. We ask that you protect them as they stand in harm's way. We pray, Lord, if they are uh, deployed, uh, Lord, that you would give them fellowship and encouragement. And we pray for their families, Lord, that you would unite them together, Lord, that you would bring them together. Pray for our governor. Pray for our senators, our representative, our mayor, Lord. We pray that they would govern diligently uh, in accordance with your principles and statutes. Finally, Lord, we pray for this church, Lord. Let us be a city on the hill. Let us be a hospital for the sick. Let us be a herald of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to a hurting world. And so we lift up all of these prayers to you. We pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And now we'll have our time confession. The confession of sin is found in your bulletin on page two. We'll pray through it together in a moment. Um, why do we confess our sin? It's really about becoming hopeless again. Uh, we know God's commandments. We know what he calls us to do. To love him with all of our being and to love one another when we're confronted with God's commandments, when we're confronted with God's law, we say with Isaiah, Woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. We say with Peter, he is before the Lord, and the Lord's revealed him, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinner. Lost, hopeless. Of course, the good news is, God doesn't leave us lost and hopeless. He comes and he gives us a word of grace. So we confess. We throw ourselves upon his mercy. We lean on him and we receive his word. His word of kindness, which comes surprisingly and Let's go ahead and confess together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. First Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. The word of the Lord. So our song of grace 
we haven't sung this before, but it reminds us that it's not about how bad we may be feeling. It's the sufficiency of Christ. The last line is, we have no shelter from our sin, but in our wounded side. So let's sing this.
only reason why I think I accept that is because of the character development there. Because of how sad they were. The other thing I didn't like was that. Why, why did Sam get the like the thing I'm getting? Yes. Okay, I was just I was just talking about Michael. Why did Sam? Seen? Why did Sam get the skill? You know, not Bucky. Bucky. Like ah, uh, he knew Bucky so for angry. like seventy years before that. He grew up with Bucky. Bucky took care of him. Like, well, what if what if what if in that ultimate universe that he went back to when he stayed with Peggy, he did give it to Bucky when he like when he like sort of gave up the mission? What if he already had given it to Bucky in that ultimate timeline that he created? And it didn't turn out so well, or like he had to turn or something.
Luke 17, 20 through 37. Jesus being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the rooftop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The word of the Lord. Well, I'm sure you'll all uh, awaiting uh, with bated breath, perhaps chewing off your fingernails, wondering if Ronald Wineland's prediction is going to come true. Ronald Wineland, who is a former pastor in Ohio, has said that the world is going to end June 2019. However, of course, he has in his Prophecy Against the Nations, which he published in the internet, suggested that this would happen after World War III begins in February or March of 2019. So I do not think World War III has yet begun. So perhaps, once again, the second coming will, uh, will be staved off. For he has said the second coming is dependent on a global war. God has revealed, I guess to him, that this final end time count to Christ's return must fully align with the timing of certain annual holy days and that within that alignment, there must be the fulfillment of very specific segments. So, he says, June 9th is when it is supposed to happen. But if it does not, then it would appear that it will be shuffled back to Pentecost of 2020. So, hold your breath, but it might be happening. You do not know. It seems that since the beginning of time, people have pre been predicting the exact date of the return of Christ. Now, we are smarter than that, aren't we, knowing the scriptures where Jesus says, no one knows, no one can predict. We're good Presbyterians. But there is another danger, isn't there? While not obsessing on the date of the return of Christ, to think too little of it. Indeed, to think that maybe it's not coming at all. That is, of course, the error of our world, secular world that we live in. Secular meaning this age, this time. There's the belief in a world that the world goes on and on in perpetuity. There is the great circle of life. We've even heard it sung. And yet at the same time, our hearts do not necessarily buy this, believer or not. 
Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in the hearts of man. You ever wondered why it is that, uh, that people have such an obsession with death? Why we go to horror movies? Why are there so many movies and shows about zombies and things like that? Because there's a sense within us that life does not simply go on and on, that there, sh there was a beginning, there is an end. In fact, if you have that mentality that there, there really is no plan to life, it's just one cosmic accident, it will ultimately drive you insane. And so the solution is not to think so specifically about the specific date of the return of Christ, or not to think about it at all, but rather to think correctly, to think biblically. And so that's what we're going to do when we examine these questions that are asked in this sermon text. Because really there are only two questions that are asked. Number one, when is the kingdom going to come? And Jesus answers first to the Pharisees and second to the disciples. That's my first and second point. And then finally the question, where? Where is it going to start? Where is it going to happen? When and where are the two bookends of this scripture? And so that's what we're going to dig into as we look at this passage. Let's begin with point number one. When is the kingdom of God going to come? In verse 20, it starts off by saying, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now, why are the Pharisees asking Jesus this question? Well, it's because the Pharisees and every Jew, for that matter, is trying to figure out when the kingdom will come because they are in the midst of persecution and have been for decades, even centuries. They live under Roman rule. Their money, their lives, their bodies ultimately belong to the Romans and they're persecuted. They cannot fully worship the way that they want. And they have been reading the scriptures and they see that they speak of this one who will come, a Davidic Messiah who will conquer their enemies and restore Jerusalem and Israel to its former glory. And so here is one who claims to come from God. And so they're asking him the question, perhaps to test him. And Jesus' response is very interesting. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Now think a little bit about that. For how do kingdoms come in this world? How are they inaugurated? Usually it's through military might, is it not? One country conquers another, their military rolls into the streets, they take over the government and they powerful leader figure who is leading that army steps into power and there's a social upheaval in that country and this kingdom comes in power and might and glory but Jesus says the kingdom of God is not coming in that way indeed it's coming in an invisible type way in a subversive type way when you think of the other passages that Jesus has spoken on regarding the kingdom of heaven, he's talked about it as a seed, a small seed, the smallest of all seeds that's planted, but grows up to become the greatest plant in the garden. Or a little pinch of leaven that's put into the dough that permeates slowly its character, moving into every facet of that dough. The kingdom will not come in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. 
If you have the NIV translation, I would say incorrectly translates, the kingdom of God is in you. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees here. He's answering, and most certainly the kingdom of God is not within them. Rather, it is in the midst of them. Notice these words, it is in the present tense, and midst meaning it's right here. It's right in front of you. In other words, this is a rebuke to the Pharisees that are asking this question. It's calling out to them that they are blind. Jesus has been demonstrating the kingdom of God in his life and in his power since he stepped foot on the face of the earth, or since he started his ministry at age 30. He's been calming storms. He's been healing bl the blind and the sick. Indeed, he just before this healed 10 lepers, only one of which came back. And yet the Pharisees cannot see this. We need to think and hearken back to good old Nicodemus, right? Who came with Jesus and asking him for information about the kingdom of God. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And Nicodemus cannot figure it out. He's wondering if he has to somehow go back into his mother's world, and he cannot figure that out. He's blind, and the Pharisees are blind, and the reason they're blind is because they refuse to recognize the king in their midst. The king you see, Jesus, comes in a bit of a disguise, not as the rulers of the world at that time. The king comes as a lamb. Jesus rebuked the, the Pharisees in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them that you have eternal life and they bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Pharisees, I'm standing right in front of you and yet you cannot see me. See, Jesus has come to inaugurate the kingdom of God, but not yet to fully consummate it. And Jesus will fight a battle, the greatest battle of all battles, as he goes up on the cross and dies. Colossians 2.15 puts it this way, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus defeats Satan himself and his heavenly forces, triumphing over them by dying on the cross and then rising again. And even there the Pharisees cannot see it. Even as Jesus proclaims to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, I am fully in charge and I am doing my campaign throughout this world. I have inaugurated my kingdom and I'm advancing it in the same manner they cannot see. Now it's easy to look at the Pharisees and say, how could you miss it? I mean, if I was right there and Jesus Christ was in my midst, would I not bow down? Would I not worship? And yet, 2,000 years later, life goes on. And the kingdom continues to extend. Invisibly, if you will, in the hearts of men. Working in ways throughout people's hearts and lives. But we see the fallenness of men. We experience our own difficulties and sin and, and circumstances. We see many times evil winning again and again. And we don't see the trumpets and the chariots. 
and it becomes easy to conclude that God is not here. And we can look at the circumstances of the world as mere chance. And the result is depression, bitterness, and apathy. And it's so easy to take our focus off the kingdom of God and to just work on building our own. But Jesus is communicating to us that I have inaugurated my kingdom, but it's not like the kingdoms of the world. It will not come like a regular kingdom through political and military might. It's subversive, and yet it grows, and it grows, and it grows. I went to Lowe's yesterday, for I have encountered the enemy in my yard. It is called creeping violence. Does anyone know about creeping violence? Out, out, vile weed. Oh, it looks cute for a while. It puts these little wild purple flowers, and it has like these dollar-like, you can think it's dollar weed. Oh, no, it's not dollar weed. No, it's creeping violet. Think of the word, violet creeping. Creepy violet. See, it's pretty at first, but it spreads, and it's very hard to kill, because the way that it spreads is through what are called rhizomes. Same thing as Bermuda grass. In other words, it's growing underneath the ground. And when you try to pull it up, lo and behold, you discover that there's this extension because underneath, now in the beginning, you can't see the creeping violet because the violet is, well, creeping. But at a certain point, it rears its ugly head and your yard has been defeated before it has yet even begun. Creeping violet is like Christianity. In a good way. <laughs> and people have tried to stamp out Christianity. Have they not? They'll slaughter Christians in Sri Lanka and say, hey, we've won. I think there were six Christians executed in Burkina Faso just a couple of days ago at Pentecost. They can forbid Bible reading in China. They can try to intellectually outlaw it on the college campuses of America. But it cannot be stopped, because Jesus cannot be stopped. And the word continues, and it spreads, subversively, invisibly, and yet it rears its head in a beautiful way, as Christ has demonstrated through us loving our enemies. So how do you see the world? When will it come? We all long for the coming of the kingdom if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, uh, in fact, one of the proofs that you are a Christian is you long for Christ to come back. But in so many instances, it seems invisible. But it's not invisible to our heart, is it? When we look. When we look with intelligence and wisdom throughout the world. When we see what Christ has done in this country and continues to do. Now, we must be wiser than the Pharisees. We must look for signs of the kingdom. We must expect for the power of Christ to be made manifest in our lives, in our relationships as believers with one another. And we must trust in Christ, even when we cannot see the kingdom of God in full bloom, that he is at work, and that he who began a good work in this world and in us 
will bring it to the day of completion. And that's why Jesus moves on, my second point, to explain to the disciples when it will come. Notice, he answered the Pharisees first, and then verse 22, and he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Now what is he talking about when he talks about the days of the Son of Man? He's not talking, we would think it's about when Jesus is going to be on the earth. Remember, Jesus actually said, it's for your good that I go away. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come back to you. Now he's speaking of the days of the Son of Man as the time when Jesus Christ comes back. Don't confuse days with the day. Because we very clearly see in this passage, when Jesus comes, it will be like lightning across the sky. But he's saying to the disciples that you will long for this coming of Jesus. And you will not see it. And there will be the tendency, the temptation, to be discouraged. And so he advises them with point number one. First, when they say to you, look, there it is, or here, do not go out or follow them. When Ronald Wineland issues another prediction, do not sell all of your furniture and go to a pasture to be lifted up because it's not going to happen. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, there will be a time when everyone will see. You know, when lightning flashes up the sky, if you're here, or if you're in Kempsville, you're going to see it. Why? Because it, it, is, it is unmistakable. You can see it very clearly. We're not talking about thunder. We're talking about lightning. And Jesus is saying it's going to be like that. But until then, many false notices will go out. Don't listen to them. Now, why will there be a temptation to listen to them? Because life is hard. Following Jesus is hard. The scriptures tell us that outwardly we're wasting away. That inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Holding on to our hope in Jesus Christ can be hard and difficult. We are blessed in the sense that, you know, we are not having to meet like some of our brothers and sisters around the world, secretly in a room, wondering if at some point somebody's going to bust through the door and take them off to prison. But these disciples were experiencing that. And so there'll be a temptation to take our energy and efforts off of these people with these wild claims. And then when it doesn't happen, it will discourage us. But Jesus explains what's going to happen. Just as it was in the days of Noah, verse 26, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So let's transport ourselves back to the day of Noah, the morning of the day of Noah. And guess what? If we lived back then, we would have woken up, we would have eaten our breakfast, and we would have gone to work just like it was a regular day, like the one before and the one before. See, to everyone, life was quite normal. Perhaps on your way to work, you would have passed Noah, the crazy guy who has been building an ark 
for 70 to 100 years how long it took him to build the ark. I can't even keep my deck going for like two or three years. And Noah has been faithfully, patiently building this ark, preaching of what is to come. It's like, it's like uh, Charlie Brown's teacher. Nobody listens anymore. And if you had asked the people the night before the flood what they were going to do the next day, they would have given a humdrum, humdrum description of what they were going to do. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage up until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Even when the rain started coming, they would have thought, oh great, it's going to rain. But it didn't stop raining, did it? Until the waters came and wiped every single person, except for Noah and his family, off the face of the earth. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, building and uh, planting and building. It was business as usual, as usual, at Sodom and Gomorrah on that day. Nobody saw it coming. They were planting their crops. They were building their homes. But the word came to Lot and his family, take your wife and your children and leave this city, for I'm going to destroy it. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down and destroyed them all. And Jesus gives these instructions to the disciples and he gives them to us. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And it is here that we encounter the second shortest verse in the New Testament. We all know the first, don't we? Jesus wept. Well, this is the second one. Remember Lot's wife. Now, why do you think Jesus put in here this instruction to remember Lot's wife? You'll remember as the angels led Lot and his wife and his children out of the city, he gave specific, they gave specific instructions. As they brought them out, one said, this is Genesis 19, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. But in verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Why did she look back? I mean, the angels came, struck the entire city blind, and led them out. I'm going to destroy this place with fire, with sulfur and brimstone. Do not look back. I think the answer is in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. See, I think when Lot's wife looked back, there was a sense of longing for the way that things were, for her home, for her culture, for her friends, whatever it was. Maybe a sense of, I'm not sure I want to go. See, Lot's wife had not made peace with which kingdom she belonged to. Whoever seeks to preserve his life, I'm not sure that Jesus is talking about their physical life. 
Then he's talking about the life that you live in the kingdom of the world. That if that is the most important thing to you, that ultimately is what you will get. And you will lose it. But if you lose that life to embrace my life that I have for you, you will ultimately keep it. You know, there is a sense of sobriety in this gospel. Ever since Luke has set his, excuse me, in the gospel of Luke, ever since Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem, there are less miracles. There's more seriousness. It was the author, G.K. Chesterton, that said very adroitly that one thing Jesus never did in the Gospels is that he never laughed. Now, I'm not saying Jesus never laughed, but I'm saying in the Gospels he never laughed. Because the one thing that Jesus was dead serious about was the reason that he came to rescue a people from the destruction that is to come. The gospel is good news, but the reason that it is good news, in fact, the best news, is that it is the ultimate and only answer from unspeakable terror that is to come. Because the reality is your and my situation was so desperate that it demanded the death of the Son of God on a cross to rectify it. So this is serious stuff. I don't know if you remember the day that will live in infamy, December 7, 1941. Just before 8 a.m. on that Sunday morning, hundreds of Japanese warplanes emerged out of the sky and managed to destroy or damage nearly 20 American naval vessels, including eight battleships and over 300 airplanes. 2,400 Americans lost their life in that and another 100,000 were wounded. Now the Japanese and the Americans, there had been rumblings of war for decades as economic sanctions were opposed. Indeed, the Americans even believed that an attack would come. But they were convinced it was going to come in the South Pacific somewhere. And the Japanese saw Hawaii and they saw a sitting duck. And so at 8.10 on that day, an 1,800 pound bomb smashed through the deck of the battleship USS Arizona and landed in her forward ammunition magazine. The ship exploded and sank with more than 1,000 men trapped inside. Now, if you had asked those men at 7.30 a.m. what their day was going to look like on the USS Arizona, it would have been a humdrum list of details and boring facts. Swab the deck, check the guns, and so on and so on. See, you can only belong to one kingdom. And the blessing and the gift we have is we have today. Have you made your decision? Lot's wife hasn't said goodbye to Sodom. Have you? You may want to have both of them. You can't.
Jesus came to rescue you and me. Now that does not mean that we do not live our life here with an open hand and enjoy the gifts and, and take and do the responsibilities that God has given us on this earth. But full well knowing today could be the day. And it most certainly could. Our hope, our treasure must be in Jesus Christ. So make your decision now. I finish with my final point. The final question, if you will. It's uh, uh, verse 37. And they said to him, where? Jesus continues on in verse 34 and 35. I tell you, that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now very quickly, I want to touch on the fact, many people ask me about the rapture. You know, have you seen the bumper sticker? In case of the rapture, this car will be unmanned. The scriptures are very clear. It is not the godly that ultimately are taken away. It is the wicked. Just like in the days of Noah, right? Noah landed their ark and they looked around and there was nobody else. The meek will inherit the earth. And the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven to earth, dressed as a bride for her husband. But Jesus is going to melt the earth and resurrect it anew. And everything that is wicked and sinful will be taken away. And Jesus gives this illustration of where. I wonder what the disciples are asking. Maybe the disciples are saying, I want to get as far away from this as possible. And Jesus said, where the corpse is there, the vultures will gather. I don't know if you've ever done this. You know, you've been driving in your car and you have kids. If you have little kids. And they say, yeah, what? What are all those big birds doing? They don't even know what they are, right? They just see them sort of lazily circling. And you have to explain to your children, son, there's a dead body down there. And they're gathering. What Jesus is saying is you will know when the day of destruction comes. Because it will be a day of death. It will be a day of judgment. For some who believe in Christ, it will be a day of unspeakable joy. For others, it will be a day of unspeakable horror. But it will most certainly be a day of ultimate seriousness. I was in the supermarket a couple days ago thinking about this sermon. And as I handed my money to this woman who I did not know, and I thought about this day coming, I immediately started to pray for her. Because every single person that you encounter will either be one of two things. An unspeakably glorious being or an unspeakable object of horror. We've got to get serious. 
Because Jesus is serious. And the kingdom of God has begun. But it is not consummated. So see heaven. Work on earth. And be ready. Let us live this earthly life with our hearts in heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us to be serious about the truth and the reality that you came to rescue us from the destruction that is to come. God, let us live our lives in sobriety. Let us not look back as Lot's wife did. Let us cling to the hope of the kingdom. And let us seek to proclaim with our lives, with all wisdom, the good news of rescue that is in Jesus Christ for friends, for brothers and sisters, for family and for world. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.
blood of Christ, take and drink. Let's stand and worship our Savior with our final song. So stick around for that. A movie available uh, for the little ones, as well as 15 different types of Oreos. I encourage you to try the sushi Oreo or the lobster bisque Oreo. It's really, really good. Go ahead and bow your heads for the benediction. May the love of the Father, the salvation of the Son, and the power of the Holy Spirit be upon you, Redeemer Presbyterian, today, this week, and forevermore. Amen. The service is ended. Go in peace. Mm -hmm.